Would you pray with me? Father, thank you that you are for us. And God, if you're for us, then who can be against us? God, I pray that as we, in the weeks ahead, face the unknown and the unprecedented, that you would be our great comforter. Thank you that you are the God of all strength. Lord, I pray that you would remind your people that you are great, you are sovereign over suffering, you're sovereign over this crisis. God, you are also good. You are present with your people in the midst of adversity. God, would you bless your word this morning, bless your people, bless uh, our, our people's homes as they hear the word and hear what you have to say to your people today. It's in Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. Amen. Hey, in the midst of the COVID-19 crisis, I want you to know just a couple of things. One, we are praying for you as a church. And even though the the medium, the channel of the uh, sermon looks a little different, worship looks a little different in these times, I want to thank you for joining us uh, wherever you are, uh, probably in your home. Uh, Know that we are praying for you and thank you that, um, man, you're you're a part of Ignite. We miss you, we love you, and we are here for you to serve you and care for you uh, in the weeks ahead. I also want to highlight a step of courage that many of our leaders are taking in this season. Uh, I had the privilege of talking with several of our life group leaders, uh, and they are still planning on leading through April, but it's going to look a little different, taking steps of courage and... uh, hosting their life group via Zoom and via Google Meet and uh, navigating what technology looks like and what online connection looks like. But we are staying connected. Our life groups are still moving forward. And so uh, if you're leading a life group, if you're part of a life group, really want to say thank you for doing that. Thank you for staying connected, uh, growing in your faith, building relationships, uh, even though we are practicing uh, social distancing. With that said, I'm really excited because... Uh, Over the next five weeks, we're going to be starting a new teaching series together uh, as a church. And we're going to be focusing on one little phrase that's repeated over 90 times throughout the New Testament. If you've read any of the New Testament, you've probably uh, come across these words, but maybe you've just skipped right over them. But uh, we're going to be starting a series called In Christ. These are uh, two small words with massive importance for our lives as followers of Jesus. And we're going to be looking at what it means to be in Christ. Paul says in Colossians chapter 3 verse 3 that if you're in Christ, you have died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. So over the next 5 weeks, in light of everything going on around us, I can't think of a better uh, teaching series, a better word study to uh, dive into together as we learn what it means to be in Christ. And the series is really going to be answering uh, this question. What happens after we place our faith in Jesus? Right? Here's what you need to know. Um, Placing your faith in Jesus does not just secure eternal life, but it's good news for all of life. Placing your faith in Jesus does not just secure eternal life, but it is good news for all of life. So know that Over the next few weeks, uh, we as a pastoral team, we as a staff are praying that your faith will be strengthened as as we get to know more about our great and good God, all in the person and work of Jesus Christ. 
That said, we're going to be in Romans chapter 3 uh, together today. Uh, so if you have your Bible or you have a smartphone or a device handy, I want you to uh, flip open to Romans chapter 3. We're going to be looking at uh, verses 21 through 26. The letter uh, to the church in Rome was written by the Apostle Paul. It is a massive book in the New Testament. Um, I was telling uh, some people earlier that uh, the book of Romans is really just one long idea. It's kind of one long argument. Uh, so it's, it's really tough to just isolate a few verses, but we're going to be reading verses 21 through 26. We're going to look at uh, what it means to be justified in Christ. What does it mean to be justified in Christ? Romans 3 verse 21 says this, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith, here's our word, in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And if you have a Bible handy or your device open, I want you to highlight or underline the second part of verse 26. That's our big idea that we're going to unpack uh, in our time together today. God is just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. God is just and the justifier. Okay, God is just. This is who God is. But God is also the justifier. It's what God does. I want you to think with me for a moment. What does it mean for God to be just? What does it mean for God to be just? When we talk about the justice of God, we're not just describing what he does, but we're describing who he is. The theological term would be the attributes of of God. Justice is an attribute or a quality of God. But know this, uh, God does not just have justice, he is justice. And this, this might be bending your mind a little bit, um, because this is actually what sets God apart from you and me. This is what sets God apart from his creation. Right? You, you and me, we, we might have a sense of justice, uh, my wife Ashton has a strong sense of justice when she sees injustice in the world, when she sees injustice in a relationship, it, it bothers her because she has a strong sense of justice and I love that about her. Uh, she has justice, but God, he, he doesn't just have justice, it's not something that's added to his being. God is justice. Uh, it's, it's who he is. Or I'll give you maybe another example. Uh, husbands, perhaps you're tuning into this uh, teaching, uh, sitting next to your spouse and with your, with your family. I want you to think back uh, with me for a moment to when you, when you first noticed your wife, right? when you first noticed her. Um, maybe you were in a social setting and you, you noticed and you thought to yourself, man, that, that woman's smile just has a way of lighting up the room and lightens up my heart a little bit. Uh, and, and by the way, in light of all the quarantine stuff going on, it might be a good idea, just a reminder of that right now, uh, that 
she, she lights up the room. Man, that would be a good, good marriage tip for you. But that being said, you're describing something that your wife did. Right? She, she lights up the room, but it would be silly to say that uh, your wife is light. Uh, sorry, that's just not the case. But when we talk about God, we, we can say that his attributes are actually who he is. It's fundamental to his existence. That's why the Apostle John in 1 John chapter 1 says that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. Or a very popular verse you might know of in 1 John chapter 4, the Apostle John says, God is love. It's not something he has, it's something he, he is. And Paul says in Romans 3 that God is just. He's a good judge who renders a good verdict. He is always right. He is always good. He is always true in his judgments. Why? Because he does not just have justice. He is just in all of his ways. Paul says God is just. But then he says this. God is also the justifier. God is the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. We know that God is just. But then Paul says, not only is he just, but he also acts justly. That's what it means to be the justifier. And as we focus on the theological term justification this week together, we can unpack very briefly what it means uh, as a doctrine. We know that God is the justifier. And the doctrine of justification uh, is this. It is to be declared righteous before God in light of the law. Okay, justification is a declaration of righteousness before God in light of the law. Okay, if you imagine with me for a moment, the doctrine of justification is, it's a, it's a legal term in a lot of ways. So imagine with me that uh, God as a good judge is presiding in the courtroom and you're standing before God and he is going to judge you based on your works, what you have done, what you have earned with your life and with your actions. And to be justified means that God looks at the law, the 613 commandments he gives in the Old Testament. He looks at all of the law, looks at you and says, you are justified, you are righteous, you have fulfilled in a sense these, these commandments. It's a declaration of righteousness in a legal sense. Okay, here's what justification is not. Justification is not a process. Justification is not the process of becoming more like Jesus. Uh, next week, we're going to look at that process. That's called sanctification. Okay, justification is not a process. It is a once-for-all declaration of free and full righteousness according to the law. This is the action that God does for those who are in Christ. He's not just just in his being, he's the justifier in his action. This is what God does. And so before we look at why this is good news for us, which we'll do in a moment, um, I, I want to ask you this, and this isn't to condemn you, this isn't to uh, slight you, this is an actual question I want you to think through, and that I had to think through as I'm studying uh, this week even, and it is this, do you have a hard time believing that God is just? Do you have a hard time believing that God can declare the sinner to be fully and freely righteous? 
I know it's something I wrestle with. I know, for example, our world wrestles with this. Our culture wrestles with the justice of God. It's a real significant issue. Right? Uh, The justice of God, or the lack thereof, some people will say, is the basis for rejecting religion altogether in our culture. Many people um, think that God is unjust and therefore he cannot be worthy of worship or even maybe can't exist at all. And this isn't just an issue in our world, but what if I told you that actually the biblical authors, one of the central themes of the Bible is the justice of God and Human authors, uh, people of God living throughout history, just like you, just like me, have wrestled with this problem of evil, have wrestled with the justice of God. This is what the book of Habakkuk is about. It's a little book about a big God. The prophet Habakkuk, in your Old Testament, was a godly man. And he really opened up his prayer journal and wrote the book of Habakkuk And he was wrestling with the justice of God. He looked out into the world. He saw the brokenness, the oppression, the sickness, the devastation, the poverty that was around him. And he cried out to God, God, how long will you stand idly by while your people are destroyed? It's it's good to wrestle through the justice of God. And this is what Paul was doing in Romans chapter 3. Because in verse 25 of Romans chapter 3, Paul says that God in his divine forbearance, he passed over former sins. God passed over former sins. This is Paul referring to numerous occasions throughout the Old Testament history where God clearly saying the penalty for sin is death, allowed people to live even after terrible sins. We can see this on the first few pages of the Bible. Uh, God created Adam and Eve, placed them in a garden and said, "You you can eat of any tree, just don't eat the fruit of this one tree, the tree of the knowledge of the good and evil, because if you do, the day you eat of it, you will surely die. Well, our, our first parents, Adam and Eve, Uh, Just like we would have done in their place, uh, they ate of the fruit of the tree. In that moment, the Bible says, uh, their eyes were opened, and they now knew between good and, and evil. But here's the magnificent thing. The moment they ate of it, they did not die physically. They, they lived on. Now, they were separated from God, but But God had, had in a sense, passed over their sin. And Paul realizes that for God to be a good judge, man, a good judge, knowing what is right and knowing what is wrong, cannot just pass over injustice. And so Paul's wrestling with this in Romans 3. Is God truly just? That's the question you and I have to wrestle with. That's the question that Paul is wrestling with how is God just and how does he declare the unrighteous to be righteous and Paul argues that God is completely just in that he sent Jesus Christ 
God's justice is displayed most fully and infinitely in the person and work of Jesus Christ. That's Paul's argument in in Romans 3. God is just in that he sent Jesus Christ to pay the penalty of sin. And God is the justifier because he sent Jesus to deal with sin once and for all in place of all who would place their faith in Jesus. And as we come to a close, Paul gives us three ways in in Romans 3, specifically verses 23 through 25, three ways that Jesus demonstrates the justice of God. And the first one I want you to look at is verse, in verse 24. It, it says that uh, we are justified by God's grace as a gift. We're justified by God's grace as a gift. Here's what you need to know. It is God's work in Christ, not your good works, that make you right before God. It is everything that God has done in Christ... It is not anything that you can do in your own strength that makes you righteous before God. Paul says in Romans uh, chapter 3, verse 20, by the works of the law, by the good things we try and do to make ourselves right with God, by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. It's God's work, not your good works, that make you right with him. A little bit later in verse 24, Paul uses this word redemption. We're justified by God's grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Okay, redemption in the New Testament era referred to uh, a sum of money that was paid to a slave owner to free a slave from their master. It was a purchase of physical freedom. And Paul uses this language of redemption, purchasing freedom, to describe the finished work of Christ on the cross. Jesus' finished work purchases our freedom so that we're no longer slaves to sin, but as Paul says in Romans 6, a few chapters later, we are now slaves to righteousness because we're justified in God's sight. And the third way that Jesus shows the justice and righteousness of God is in verse 25. This is a five-syllable word, by the way. This is like theological times three, okay? Uh, He uses the word propitiation. Verse 25. We have redemption in Christ Jesus, whom God put forth as a propitiation by his blood. There's your quarantine word of the week, propitiation. Propitiation is a big word that refers to the place of atonement. It's an Old Testament Levitical priestly term. And propitiation is synonymous with the place of atonement. It's where sin is dealt with. It's where in the Old Testament blood was shed to make right and cover for the sins of guilty humanity. Here's what Paul is saying. The work of Christ on the cross is the place where sin was dealt with once and for all. Christ is our propitiation. He is our atoning sacrifice so that we can be declared righteous in God's sight. Here's why this is important. God did not just look at your sin as a good judge and sweep your sin under the rug and and ignore it and look over it. That's not just. Uh, 
God dealt with your sin in Christ once and for all at the cross of Calvary. God is just in doing this. And I conclude with this. I'll close my Bible so you know I'm actually wrapping up. Paul says, God is just and the justifier of the one who places faith in Jesus. Faith in Jesus. It's faith that unites us to God, unites us to Christ's work, and applies Christ's work to the unrighteous. It's for the one who has faith in in Jesus. This has been called throughout history the great exchange. Because our faith, when we place our faith in Jesus, we are justified, declared righteous, and Christ's finished work on the cross, all the benefits he purchased for us, are applied to us and given on our account. Faith applies the work of Christ to the believer and it unites us to Christ. It's all predicated on on faith. Church, God is just and God is the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And this is good news because regardless of how you feel, regardless of what you've done, regardless of what has been done to you, regardless of what is going on around you. If you're in Christ, the Father has declared you righteous. And that will not change. And this frees you from work. This frees you from the burden of trying to earn your right standing with God. Man, no person can do that. God is infinitely holy and just. Instead, we trust in Christ's finished work applied to our account by faith so that we can be declared righteous and restored in right relationship with our Father for all of eternity. This is the good news of the doctrine of justification. Would you pray with me? Father, you are so good. You are for us. And if you're for us, who can stand against us? God, it doesn't matter how we feel. You have declared your people righteous in Christ. We are justified in Christ. And we are justified by a God who is just in all of his ways. Would you remind your people of that truth today? Would you strengthen our faith as we navigate the crisis ahead of us and as we grow as strong disciples? In Jesus Christ, it's in his precious name we pray, amen.